0: Hey everyone, welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I'm Ashton, and today is Christmas. I hope you all are waking up surrounded by the ones you love today. And if maybe today isn't your favorite day of the year, just know that I have a spot in my heart for you, and I'm thinking of you today. It's currently Christmas Eve as I record this. It's very early in the morning. I have coffee and it is snowing here in Colorado, so the vibes are pretty good. We've discussed a few different Christmas crimes on the pod before, the murder of Jean-Benet Ramsey, the disappearance of the Solder children, but it turns out there are many more to cover. And today I've put together some shallow dives of a few of the lesser known cases, at least to me. When I say lesser known, I usually mean to me. It's right on brand for me, you all know that. Let's get into it. Up first, we're heading back to Christmas Day in 1951 in Mims, Florida, to the home of Harry and Harriet Moore. The couple was celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. They were civil rights activists and teachers. After graduating from high school, Harry became a fourth grade teacher at an elementary school in Brevard County. While there, he met Harriet Sims, a former teacher who was selling life insurance at the time. The two hit it off and they married on Christmas Day. They eventually finished their education at Bethune-Cookman College and returned to teaching, with Harry going on to be the principal of the Titusville Colored School. In 1934, Harry and Harriet founded a chapter of the NAACP in Brevard County. Harry fought for equal rights for Black Floridians, challenging barriers to voter registration, investigating lynchings, and advocating for equal pay for Black teachers in public schools despite segregation. Harry and Harriet both lost their teaching jobs because of their activism, which fueled Harry to become a paid NAACP organizer. In 1937, Harry filed the first lawsuit in the South, which demanded that the salaries of black and white teachers be equal. The initial lawsuit failed in court, but it led to many other federal lawsuits, which eventually led to salary equality in the state of Florida. So these were some pretty amazing people. Harry formed the Progressive Voters League in Florida in 1944, and by the time of his death, he helped increase the number of Black voters in Florida by more than 100,000. Following the 1949 Groveland rape case, in which four young Black men were accused of raping a white woman, a mob tore through the neighborhood, leading authorities to call on the National Guard to restore order. The men were convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to death, and in comes Harry. He succeeded in his campaign to overturn the wrongful convictions. In 1951, the Supreme Court granted the appeal and ordered a new trial. Harry called for the sheriff's suspension after he shot two of the defendants, killing one and critically wounding another while transporting them to a pretrial hearing. That case deserves its own episode. There's so much into it. But six weeks later, on Christmas night, Harry and Harriet were at home cutting their wedding cake as they did each year. They hadn't opened presents yet because they were waiting for their daughter Evangeline to arrive. But at 10.20 p.m., a blast ripped apart their bedroom, splintering the floorboards, ceiling, and front porch— The explosion was so powerful that witnesses reported hearing it several miles away. A bomb had been planted under the couple's bed. Harry died on the way to the hospital, and Harriet died from her injuries nine days later. Harry was the first ever NAACP official to be assassinated, but despite a massive investigation and public outcry, no one was arrested for the couple's murder. More than 50 years later, after the case had been reopened several times, four Ku Klux Klan members were identified as being directly involved in the murders. Today, the Christmas Day bombing is thought of as the first murder in the civil rights movement. I can't believe I didn't know about this case, but I'm glad that I do now. That is the story of the murder of Harry and Harriet Moore. Up next, we're heading back to Christmas Eve in 1913 in Calumet, Michigan. The area was full of miners, approximately 9,000 of which were unionized copper miners. Most of them were immigrants from Poland, Croatia, and Italy. And at the time, they had been on strike against the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company for almost six months. In July of that year, the Western Federation of Miners called a strike against all copper country mines. They were pushing for a $3 daily wage, eight hour workdays, safer working conditions, and better representation for the workers. The strike was a violent one. Strikers intimidated and attacked strike breakers, while police attacked the strikers. In one case, local deputies shot and killed two of the strikers. Family members of the miners joined in, taking to the picket lines in hopes of protecting their loved ones from being attacked but this only led to more violence and the near death of a 12-year-old girl who was shot during one altercation. Christmas Eve was supposed to bring some reprieve from the constant battles between the miners and the mining company. The union announced that it would be hosting a Christmas party that evening for the striking miners and their families at the Italian Hall in Calumet. A huge Christmas tree had been decorated and presents had been wrapped for all of the children. That night, 700 people, including more than 400 children, gathered in the hall's upstairs auditorium to celebrate the holiday together. A steep stairway was the only access to the second floor, aside from the fire escapes. The children were, of course, trying to get at the presents, and one of the miner's wives, Therese Sizer, was standing on a table and trying to corral the, ch- the kids away from the presents. That's when she heard someone yell, fire. It echoed throughout the auditorium, despite the already noisy environment. Therese turned around and saw the man who had shouted it. He was medium height, wearing dirt clothes, and he had a mustache. She didn't recognize the man, but she jumped down from the table and confronted him, asking him what he was doing. And he nonchalantly told her that there was a fire. By that time, others started repeating the fire claim. People began screaming and hundreds of people started rushing towards the exit, the one narrow stairway that led to the street. In the chaos, one of the children fell in the stairway, which led others to fall over them and others. And within seconds, the stairway became packed with bodies as people crawled over one another trying to escape. In the end, there was no fire. But the stampede that resulted caused the deaths of 73 people, including 59 children. Following the tragedy, the small town wasn't prepared for that kind of mass casualty event, so coffins had to be express shipped. Some of the miners dug multiple long trench-style graves at Lakeview Cemetery, about two miles outside of Calumet. Some were for the Protestants, and some were for Catholics. The remaining victims would be buried in other graves. Funerals were held, and they drew more than 20,000 spectators who wanted to pay their respects. Some families lost more than one child in the stampede. Some children lost both parents. It was just horrific. The president of the Miners Union claimed that the Citizens Alliance had sent one of their men into the hall to yell fire in order to disrupt the festivities, Many witnesses, including one of the brothers of one of the victims, claimed that he had seen the man who caused the chaos and that he was wearing a badge signaling that he was a member of the Citizens Alliance vigilante group. The strike was eventually broken. No one was ever charged in the disaster, and there was never a trial. And to this day, the Italian Hall disaster remains the most deadly stampede in American history and the nation's worst unsolved mass murder. The old Italian Hall itself was raised in 1984, and the village park at the site was designed a few years later. It's been 110 years, but this Christmas Eve, like in years past, 73 luminaries will be lit in a village park where the Italian Hall once stood. There is one light for each victim, placed by the Calumet Rotary Club. They will line a walkway leading to an archway, the location of the doorway into the building where they died. And that is a story of the 1913 Italian Hall disaster. Up next, we'll be discussing the Lawson family murders, which occurred on Christmas Day in 1929. I know this may shock you, but I actually did know about this case. This is one of the first cases I heard about when I started getting interested in true crime. Charles Lawson met and married Fanny Manring in 1911. The couple welcomed eight children into the world over the course of their marriage. They had four girls and four boys. Arthur, Marie, William, Carrie, Mabel, James, Raymond, and Mary Lou. The Lawson family relocated to Germantown, North Carolina in 1918, and their third child, William, passed away in 1920 from an illness. The Lawson family worked as sharecroppers and had finally saved enough money to buy their own farm in 1927. Not long before Christmas in 1929, Charles took the family into town to buy new clothes and to have a family portrait taken. This would have been an unusual occurrence for a working class rural family of the era, but this will come back later. I'll include the family photo on the blog so you can check it out. On Christmas day in 1929, 17 year old Marie woke up early to bake a two layer Christmas cake. The oldest son, Arthur, wasn't home at the time. He was running an errand at the request of his father. Later in the day, Carrie and Mabel set off to visit their aunt and uncle, but they never made it. Behind the tobacco barn located on the property, their father, Charles, was waiting with a shotgun. He shot both the girls before bludgeoning them and leaving their bodies in the barn. He then made his way back to the family home where he shot his wife, Fanny, who was sitting on the porch. He then went inside where he encountered Marie and shot her as well. James and Raymond ran to hide, but Charlie found them and shot them before bludgeoning baby Mary Lou to death. After murdering his entire family, Charles positioned their bodies with their arms crossed and rocks under their heads. He then disappeared into the nearby woods where he stayed for several hours. Arthur, the oldest son, was the only survivor of the family the neighbors were alerted upon hearing the gunshots and immediately informed police. After the bodies were discovered, neighbors and family who gathered at the house heard a single gunshot coming from the woods where Charles Lawson had taken his own life. Arthur and an officer discovered Charles's body along with letters he had written to his parents. The letters didn't detail why he had carried out the massacre, but many people had their own theories. After the funeral, Charles's brother Marion opened the family home as some sort of tourist attraction, allowing visitors to walk through and keeping the cake Marie baked that day on display. In 1945, Arthur Lawson was killed in a motorcycle accident, leaving behind a wife and four children. At the time of the murders, no one could really understand why Charles would kill his entire family. Some believed that a head injury he sustained months prior was the cause, but an autopsy revealed no evidence of brain damage. Was the purchasing of the new clothes and the family portrait, portrait that he had taken a sign of premeditation? Many believed that it was, but it wasn't until 1960 when a book about the massacre was published and a secret was revealed by a cousin of the family. The cousin, Stella Lawson Bowles, confessed that she had overheard her mother and other Lawson women at the funeral talking about how Fanny had told them that she had discovered incest in her family before Christmas between Charles and 17-year-old Marie. There was also a rumor that Marie had confided in a friend that she was pregnant with Charles's baby and that both of her parents knew about it. There's a small museum dedicated to the Lawson family located at the Madison Dry Goods County store in Madison, North Carolina. The museum sits on the original site of the funeral home where the eight members of the Lawson family who died that Christmas were embalmed. And that's the shortened version of the Lawson family murders. A very well-known tale with a lot of details. So that one deserves its own episode as well. And finally, I'm going to round us out with a Christmas caper that is a little bit less dark. This time of year, it's pretty common for Christmas decorations to be messed with or go missing. But one small Florida town wasn't messing around in 2007 when it came to the baby Jesus figurine in the nativity scene. This quick tale came from an article in the Columbus Dispatch. And it reads, quote, When baby Jesus disappeared last year from a nativity scene on the lawn of the Wellington, Florida Community Center, village officials didn't follow a star to locate him. End quote. About 70 churches and synagogues had jumped at a security company's off- offer of free use of GPS systems and hidden cameras to guard their manger- mangers and menorahs that year. And the community center was no different. A GPS device mounted inside the life size ceramic figurine led sheriff's deputies to a nearby apartment. Police found the figure at the home of a man who said that a woman friend had dropped it off. Danielle Santino, 18, of Lake Worth, Florida, allegedly admitted the theft to police. She had been charged with theft of an item valued at 300 dollars to $5,000. So don't steal the baby Jesus. They're going to track you down. And that's going to do it for this Christmas special of The Haunted Corner. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. I will also link to the blog post in the show notes. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll also get access to a bonus episode each week, so it's worth it. You'll also get early and ad free access to the regular episodes, plus a lot more. Head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen. It really helps the show. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you soon. Bye.